1967, Jimi Hendrix would give a legendary performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, headlining along with Janis Joplin, The Who, and The Grateful Dead. However, a few short years later, Hendrix would take his final bow in London on September the 18th, 1970. The Purple Haze guitarist had just completed a tour and was staying at the Cumberland Hotel in London. He was due to check out on Wednesday night, but asked the hotel manager instead to book him for one more evening. Eerily, he would never return. On Thursday evening, September the 17th, Hendrix would stay at the flat of Monica Dannemann, a German painter whom he occasionally dated. After returning from a party early Friday morning, Hendrix took several sleeping pills and went to bed. A few hours later, Monica would find him unresponsive and would call an ambulance, but when they arrived, she was nowhere to be found. The medics immediately rushed Hendrix to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital, but he would be pronounced dead on arrival at 11.45am. Join us on a supernatural journey as we tour the musical history of Jimi Hendrix, explore the mystical facts and investigate the mysterious death of one of rock's legendary guitarists. This is Death by Misadventure. Al Hendrix was born and raised in Vancouver, BC. His parents were vaudevillian performers, and growing up, he yearned for the showman's life. So he became a professional jazz dancer. The depression meant little or no work for anyone, especially a performer. Al moved to Seattle from Vancouver in 1941 in search of work and a better life. At the time, Seattle had a population of less than 400,000 and had become revitalised after the Depression fueled the economy of the Puget Sound region. Every sector of business and domestic life was affected by the war effort. The society underwent dramatic change as women took the place of men on production lines, thousands of Japanese Americans were interned, and equal numbers of African Americans migrated to the Northwest in search of defence jobs. After finding a place in Seattle, Al's landlord's daughter introduced him to Lucille Jetta, a light-skinned African-American beauty with reddish hair. They both shared love for dancing and nightclubbing. They started dating, and they soon became known as a great dance team. Al had just been drafted into the army when Lucille told him she was pregnant. He said he was fine with that because he wanted to marry her anyway. On March 31st, 1942, Lucille and Al got married in a simple ceremony. Al, who had been drafted by the US Army to serve in World War II, left to begin his basic training three days after the wedding. In less than nine months later, on November 27th, 1942, at Kings County Hospital in Seattle, Lucille, at the age of only 17, gave birth to a baby boy, Johnny Allen Hendricks. Her firstborn son would later become known as Jimmy, 
and he would be the first of five children. However, her husband Al wouldn't meet his firstborn son for another three years. Lucille desperately tried to make ends meet and struggled as a new mother. She would frequently fly the coop to go partying. Little Johnny often ended up being cared for by his aunts, grandmother and friends. Al was not able or allowed to return from the military until he was discharged in 1945. He returned to Seattle, having already filed for divorce after hearing of Lucille's infidelities. At first, he was unable to locate Lucille or his son, but finally found Johnny in Berkeley under the care of Lucille's church friend, Mrs. Champs. It was the first time he met his son. Al immediately changed Johnny's name to James Marshall Hendricks in honour of his deceased brother. Al and Jimmy returned to Seattle after finding Lucille and tried to make a go of family life. Work was scarce and they were barely getting by. Jimmy, distraught by his parents' constant feuding and drinking, he would often hide to escape the fighting. Being put in others' care left him in constant emotional upheaval and uncertainty. In 1948, Lucille gave birth to her second child, Leon. However, she would later admit to Al that Leon wasn't his son, and she would give birth to three more children. Joseph, born in 1949, Kathy in 1950, and Pamela in 1951, all of whom Al and Lucille gave up to foster care or adoption. Jimmy and Leon continued to live in constant chaos, as the family frequently moved. Staying in cheap hotels and apartments around Seattle, the volatile couple would finally divorce in 1951, and Al was granted custody of Leon and Jimmy. Jimmy, an imaginative child, would use creativity to escape his sad circumstances. He loved Flash Gordon movies and was nicknamed Buster after Buster Crabb, the actor who played Flash Gordon. His other obsession was Elvis. Jimmy would jump around in an improvised cape, grab a broom as a prop guitar, and gyrate like Elvis. Al, his father, struggled to maintain a job, but still managed to get Jimmy a one-string ukulele when he was 12 years old, and finally gave him a $5 acoustic guitar at 14. Al bought Jimmy his first electric guitar when he was 15, and he soon started playing in local Seattle bands. Things went south for Jimmy in high school, and he wound up dropping out at 16. It's believed his teen troubles was fueled by his mother's health, taking a turn for the worse. By the age of 33, Lucille had developed cirrhosis of the liver, and on February 2, 1958, she died when her spleen ruptured. Devastated by the loss of his mother, Hendrix's rebellious ways continued, and before he turned 19, law authorities caught up with him, twice riding in stolen cars. Given a choice between jail or joining the army, he chose the latter and enlisted on May 31, 1961. At 19, Hendricks joined the army as a paratrooper, but stayed glued to his guitar. After completing eight weeks of basic training, he was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. 
Hendrix arrived at his base on November 8th and soon asked his father to send his guitar that he had left for safekeeping with his girlfriend, Betty Jean. However, his obsession with playing the guitar would soon contribute to his neglect of duties and led to bullying from his peers. They would sometimes hide his guitar and Hendrix would have to beg for its return. Later, he would make friends with Billy Cox, and together they began performing at military-based clubs on the weekends with other musicians in a loosely organized band, The Casuals. While playing gigs on the weekend, during the week, Hendrix would complete his paratrooper training in just over eight months, and Major General C.W.G. Rich awarded him the prestigious Screaming Eagles patch on January 11, 1962. However, he soon lost interest in the military and was reprimanded several times over the next year. On May 24, 1962, Hendrix's platoon sergeant, James C. Spears, filed a report in which he stated, He has no interest whatsoever in the Army. It is my opinion that Private Hendrix will never come up to the standards required of a soldier. On June 29, 1962, Captain Gilbert Batchman granted Hendricks an honorable discharge on the basis of unsuitability. However, Hendricks would later lie and stated he received a medical discharge after breaking his ankle during his 26th parachute jump. The next four years, Hendricks knocked around playing behind well-known R&B bands, Wilson Pickett, Ike and Tina Turner, Little Richard, and the Isley Brothers all helped mold Jimmy into a formidable musician. Great at chords, killer on leads, and an unbelievable showman. As his talent expanded, he found being a backup player too confining. Searching for broader horizons, Jimmy in 1966 moved to New York City's Greenwich Village, which had a vibrant and diverse music scene. There he was offered a residency at the Café Wa on McDougal Street, and formed his own band, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, which included future spirit guitarist Randy California. Hendrix began developing his guitar style, a material that he would soon use with the Jimmy Hendrix experience. By May 1966, Hendrix was struggling to earn a living wage playing the R&B circuit, so he briefly rejoined Curtis Knight and the Squires for an engagement at one of New York City's most popular night spots, the Cheetah Club. During a performance, Linda Keith, the girlfriend of Rolling Stone guitarist Keith Richards, noticed Hendrix. She was quoted as saying, His playing mesmerized me. She invited the young rock star to join her for a drink. He accepted, and they soon became friends. While Hendrix was playing with Jimmy James in the Blue Flames, Linda recommended him to Stone's manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, and producer Seymour Stein. They failed to see Hendrix's music potential and passed on representing him. She then referred him to Chas Chandler, who was leaving the Animals and interested in managing and producing artists. Chandler liked the Billy Roberts song, Hey Joe, and was convinced he could create a hit single with the right artist. He was impressed by Hendrix's version of the song and immediately recognized his amazing musical talent and offered to become his manager. He then took the budding rock star to England to find him a record deal, and the rest is rock and roll history.
Jimi Hendrix arrived in London on September 24, 1966, as an unknown guitar god, and by the time he left in June 1967, he was one of the biggest rock stars in Britain, with a string of hit singles, a debut album that hit number two on the charts, and a reputation as a wild performer on stage. In London, Hendrix, with his band Experience, would forge a new soundscape, stretching the blues to some outer limit of expression, ethereal but fearsome, lyrical but dangerous. On October 1st, 1966, Chaz Chandler, the bass player from The Animals, bought Hendrix to the London Polytechnic at Regent Street, where Cream was scheduled to perform, and where he would meet Eric Clapton. Jimmy asked if he could play a couple of songs with the band, and he would perform a frantic version of Killing Floor. Clapton was blown away. By now, Hendrix was a superstar in England. After the UK chart success of his first two singles, Hey Joe and Purple Haze, the Experience were ready to record a full-length LP. The album, Are You Experienced?, was a fusion of pop, rock, jazz, funk, and stoned experimentation. It included blues tracks such as Red House and Highway Child, and included the R&B song Remember. It also included the experimental science fiction piece Third Stone from the Sun. Although Hendrix was a huge hit in Europe, his first U.S. single, Hey Joe, failed to reach the Billboard Top 100 chart in the U.S. However, Destiny stepped in when Paul McCartney recommended him to the organizers of the Monterey Pop Festival. He insisted that the concert would be incomplete without Hendrix and the experience, and he agreed to join the board of organizers on the condition that the band would perform at the festival in mid-June. The stars were aligned for Hendrix that day at the festival. He would be introduced by Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones as the most exciting performer he has ever heard. The experience went on to perform renditions of Hey Joe and Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, as well as four original songs, Foxy Lady, Can You See Me, The Wind Cries Mary, and Purple Haze. The set ended with Hendrix destroying his guitar and throwing it out to the audience. Rolling Stone wrote, When Jimi Hendrix set his guitar on fire at the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival, he created one of rock's most perfect moments. Standing in the front row of that concert was a 17-year-old boy named Ed Karif. Karif had never seen Hendrix before, nor heard his music, but he had a camera with him, and there was one shot left in his roll of film. As Hendrix lit his guitar, Karif took a final photo. It would later become one of the most famous images in rock and roll history. The second Hendrix and the Experience album was Axis Bold as Love, and it showcased the band continued experimentation with psychedelic music. The cover art depicted Hendrix as various avatars of Vishnu with a painting by Roger Law from a photo portrait by Carl Ferris. Hendrix stated that the album cover would have been more appropriate had it highlighted his real American Indian heritage. He was quoted as saying, You got it wrong. I'm not that kind of Indian. The album would later hit number three in the U.S. 
and peak at number five in the UK. Recording for the Experience's third and final studio album, Electric Ladyland, began at the newly opened Record Plant Studios, with Chaz Chandler as producer and engineers Eddie Kramer and Gary Kelgren. The album was released on October 25, 1968, and would sit at number one for two weeks. After Hendrix completed his last album, he returned to London and moved back in with his on-again and off-again girlfriend, Kathy Etchingham. The bohemian $40 a week pad was lovingly described by Hendrix as the only home I ever had. By 1969, Hendrix was the world's highest paid rock musician and was set to headline the Woodstock Music Festival. By the time he had arrived at the gig and hit the stage, he'd been awake for more than three days. Hendrix's infamous performance included a wicked rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. Pop critic Al Aronowitz of the New York Post wrote, It was the most electrifying moment of Woodstock, and it was probably the single greatest moment of the 60s. By 1970, Hendrix had grown restless, and he wanted to solely focus on recording at his new studio, Electric Lady. On June 15, 1970, he would jam with Steve Winwood and Chris Wood of Traffic. The next day, he recorded his first track there, Nightbird Flying. The studio officially opened for business on August 25th, and a grand opening party was held the following day. Immediately afterwards, Hendrix left for England to begin his new tour and would never return to the United States again. However, when the European leg of the Cry of Love tour began, Hendrix was exhausted and was not eager to fulfill his commitment. On September 2nd, 1970, a tired Hendrix would stop the concert at our house after three songs, stating, I've been dead a long time. Four days later, he gave his final show at a festival in Germany. Three days after the band's fateful performance, Billy Cox, his bass player, would have a nervous breakdown after a bad LSD trip. He quit the tour abruptly and returned home to the States to stay with his parents. Hendrix returned to London and would meet with Chaz Chandler to discuss firing his manager, Michael Jeffrey. On September 16th, Hendrix would perform for the last time at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in Soho with Eric Burden and his latest band, War. Jimmy would join them on two songs, Mother Earth and Tobacco Road. Little did they know, he would be dead 48 hours later. Jimi Hendrix died in London on Friday, September 18, 1970, at the age of 27. 
He was born with the life path number nine, and his sole purpose in life was to express his ideas or spiritual practices through action. In his case, it was with his words and music. In fact, many gifted musicians, actors, and artists have the life path number nine, including Graham Parsons, who died under similar mysterious circumstances and passed away only a few years after Hendrix. Just days before his death, Hendrix was dealing with two pending lawsuits, one a paternity case and the other a recording contract dispute that was due to be heard by a UK high court the following week. However, the details of the rock star's death are vague and wildly disputed, ranging from Hendrix choked on his own vomit to he committed suicide, and others believe he was murdered. Did someone have something to hide? One fact we know for sure is that he had been in poor health due to exhaustion from constant touring, too much partying, and a reported constant flu-like illness. This was combined with his emotional insecurities about his love life, disillusionment with the music industry, and his unhappiness with his manager, Mike Jeffrey. Hendrix's European tour had just ended, and he was rumored to be engaged to Danish model Kirsten Neffer. However, after she had to leave London for work, Hendrix, feeling lonely, decided to hook up with his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Monica Daneman, on September 15th. This meeting would prove to be a fateful karmic encounter for the rock star. Four days later, Hendrix would mysteriously turn up dead. When I trace the last 48 hours of his life, I see a man who was soul-searching, and perhaps ready to pack his bags for his final trip to the afterlife. Jimmy chose to spend his final hours in London with Monica. The night before his death, they went shopping where he purchased a leather jacket and ordered some shoes. He tried meeting up with ex-girlfriend Kathy Etchingham, inviting her to visit him at his hotel that evening at 8 p.m. She declined the invitation due to prior engagements and later admitted that she had regretted it ever since. I wonder, if Kathy had met up with Jimmy that night, could his death been avoided? Jimmy and Monica that afternoon stopped at the Cumberland Hotel, where he was staying to make several telephone calls. Monica said he phoned his lawyer asking him to find a way out of his contract with his manager, Mike Jeffrey. Afterwards, the couple met up with his friend, Philip Harvey, at his apartment for tea. They smoked hashish and drank wine with his friend and two other women while discussing their individual careers. Sometime around 10 p.m., Monica apparently feeling left out of the conversation and jealous of the attention Hendrix was giving the other girls. She became visibly upset and stormed out of the apartment. Jimmy quickly followed her, and an argument ensued with Monica, calling him a fucking pig. His friend Philip, concerned that yelling would draw unwanted attention from the police, he asked them both to quiet down. Approximately 30 minutes later, Hendrix re-entered the apartment and apologized for the outburst before leaving with Monica at 10.40 p.m. She would later tell the police that she prepared a meal for Jimmy at her apartment around 11 p.m. and shared a bottle of wine with Hendrix. Afterwards, he took a bath and wrote a poem titled, The Story of Life. At 1.45 a.m. on Friday, September 18th, Monica drove Hendrix to a party a friend had invited him to earlier that day, which was hosted by Hendrix's acquaintance and business associate, Pete Cameron. At the party, Hendrix complained to Cameron about business problems, ate some food, and took at least one amphetamine tablet. 
30 minutes later, Monica, upset she was not invited to the party, banged on the door demanding to see Hendrix. Another guest, Stella Douglas, asked her to return later. She returned 15 minutes later, and Hendrix was mad she would not leave him alone. Other guests at the party shouted at Monica, asking her to leave. Hendrix eventually spoke with Monica before abruptly leaving the party with her around 3 a.m. This is where the story turns dark. Monica, who was the last person to see Hendrix alive, said she took him home and fixed him a sandwich before going to bed. Around 4 a.m., Hendrix, who suffered from insomnia, asked her for a sleeping pill, but she refused, stating she wanted him to fall asleep naturally. However, she took a sleeping pill at 6 a.m. and claimed Jimmy was still awake. Monica said she woke up later that morning at 10 a.m. and told police that Hendrix was sound asleep next to her. She quickly left her apartment to purchase cigarettes, and when she returned around 11 a.m., she found him unconscious. She telephoned for an ambulance at 11.18 a.m., and one arrived at 11.27 a.m. When the ambulance arrived, medic Reg Jones said the apartment door was wide open, the gas fire was on, the curtains were drawn, and the room was dark. The medic called out several times, but after receiving no response, they entered and found Hendrix alone in bed. Monica was nowhere to be found. The two medics on the scene were shocked to find Hendrix covered in vomit. They immediately grabbed an aspirator and tried to unblock his airway. They felt his pulse and showed a light in his eyes but the 27-year-old rock star was unresponsive. The ambulance crew left the apartment to take him to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital. Jimmy was rushed into the resuscitation room and put on a heart monitor, but the ECG trace was flat. The doctor on duty, John Bannister, commented in his medical report, the patient was cold and blue. He had all the parameters of someone who had been dead for some time. The doctor would later tell the Times the amount of wine that was over him was just extraordinary. He said he had never seen so much wine and there was at least a half a bottle in his hair. Jimmy had literally drowned in a massive amount of red wine. Even more chilling, the coroner results would later reveal only a small amount of wine in Hendrix's bloodstream and liver leaving friends and family to wonder if it really was an accidental overdose, or even worse, murder. Had Monica killed Jimmy in a jealous rage? In the memoir Rock Roadie, the author rejects the idea that Jimmy died accidentally by choking on his own vomit after a drug overdose. The book claims he was murdered by a gang who broke into his apartment in the early hours of September 18th, who forced sleeping pills and wine down his throat to kill him. The author believes it was organized by Jimmy's manager, Michael Jeffrey, who had allegedly taken out a $2 million life insurance policy on his star client. Several people have alleged that Jeffrey siphoned off much of Hendrix's income and channeled it into offshore bank accounts. When bassist Noel Redding inquired as to where Jeffrey was going with briefcases of band's money, he was asked to leave the group. In a strange twist, Jeffrey would later die in a plane crash less than three years later, on March 5, 1973. At the formal inquest, 
the coroner finding no evidence of suicide and lacking sufficient evidence of the circumstances, recorded an open verdict. Monica stated that Hendricks had taken nine of her prescribed sleeping tablets, 18 times the recommended dosage. On October 1st, 1970, Jimi Hendrix was laid to rest in his hometown, Seattle, surrounded by loved ones and friends. The Hendrix family requested a small private ceremony for the Purple Haze guitarist. The funeral service had rope barriers strung along the walkway leading up to the church doors to have fans quietly wait outside to pay their final respects to their guitar hero. Mrs. Freddie Mae Gautier, a close friend of the Hendrix family, read the eulogy, and Patronella Wright, another family friend, would sing three beautiful spiritual songs backed by a gospel piano. In her eulogy, Mrs. Gautier read from Jimmy's own works, Electric Church, and the last song he wrote, Angel, at Electric Lady, his New York recording studio. It was a haunting song, with Jimmy writing about an angel who came down from heaven to rescue him and take his body home. The lyrics read, Angel came down from heaven yesterday. She stayed with me just long enough to rescue me. And she told me a story yesterday about the sweet love between the moon and the deep sea. And then she spread her wings high over me said she's gonna come back tomorrow. The lyrics ended with, Today is the day for you to rise. Take my hand, you're gonna be my man. You're gonna rise. Then she took me high over yonder, and I said, fly on, my sweet angel. Fly on through the sky. Fly on, my sweet angel. Forever I will be by your side. At the end of Hendrix's funeral service, the pallbearers, Dave Anderson, James Thomas, Steve Phillips, Herbert Price, Eddie Howard, and Danny Howell came out, carrying their dear friend's casket. With the exception of Price, who was Jimmy's chauffeur and valet, all were buddies from his childhood. The church procession of a hundred cars made the final 20-minute drive to the Greenwood Cemetery in nearby Renton, where Jimi Hendrix would be laid to rest. Whatever planet the Purple Haze guitarist came from, he was the perfect cosmic voyager. Ruled by Jupiter, Hendrix was born under the zodiac sign of Sagittarius and was a follower of astrology. At his concert in 1970 in Hawaii, he even invited the audience to group together based on their astrological signs. In one of his songs, he described himself as a voodoo child and how the moon turned fire red the night he was born. His poetic lyrics clearly illustrated his creative soul and mystical mind beautifully complemented by his Native American roots that gave him a shaman's vision and a quiet power. 
Still, like many men, Hendrix's downfall would be his deadly attraction to crazy women, who he liked to call electric ladies. His final lover, Monica, a karmic relationship that would fatally lead to his untimely death and the last person to see him alive. The German figure skater and model would later paint herself as a tragic figure long after his death and even claim she was engaged to Hendrix at the time of his death. The remainder of her life would be buried in controversy and she would make a living off of being Jimmy's girlfriend. Her house would become an eerie shrine to the rock star and she would write a book called The Inner World of Jimi Hendrix. She even got into a public spar with two of Hendrix's former girlfriends, even though she was married to Scorpion lead guitarist Uli John Roth. The woman had no shame. In a chilling twist of fate, Monica Danneman would die of carbon monoxide poisoning two days after losing a libel suit against Hendrix's former girlfriend, Kathy Etchingham. Her death was ruled a suicide, but her estranged husband, Uli Roth, publicly stated in his opinion that her death had been a result of foul play. The drama did not end there. At the time of Hendrix's death, he had no will, and his $66 million estate, including music royalties, would be left to his father, Al. After his son's unexpected passing, Al understood the incredible value of his estate, and he quickly drafted his own will, dividing the estate between his children and grandkids. However, when Al died in 2002, the will had been mysteriously changed, and Jimmy's brother Leon was left with only one gold record. The main control of the Hendrix estate and his fortune would be given to his adopted sister, Janie. Leon, shocked by his father's change of heart, sued Janie to have the original will reinstated, claiming undue influence. She argued that Leon was cut out of the will due to his problems with drinking, drugs, and petty crimes. The Express newspaper in 2017 would report a court judge upheld Janie's control of the estate in 2004. But three years later in 2007, Leon won a lawsuit, giving him rights to Jimmy's likeness and image. When Leon produced Hendrix's vodka, liquor, t-shirts, and hi-fi speakers, Janie sued to stop him again. In a 2017 interview with Leon, The Express spoke to Jimmy's younger brother about the 15-year estate battle against his adopted sister and the current three court cases that await trial. Leon was quoted as saying, The Hendricks family doesn't get any income from the estate. It's run by strangers. Janie's got all the money and all the music, and she's still messing with me. She's not even a true Hendricks. He explained that Jimmy raised him and acted as a father figure growing up because his mother died when Jimmy was only 15 and he was 10. He claims his father was a gambler and an alcoholic who would beat them. He even missed their mother's funeral. Leon said, Jimmy loved me, looked out for me, and took over because our father was incapable. He protected me. Jimmy wanted to provide for his family, me, and my kids. He always gave me money and wouldn't have wanted us to struggle. But Janie won't even give my kids jobs working for the estate. 
Still, he cherishes his memories of being on tour with Jimmy and the time they spent together. Currently, Leon has two albums in the works and is also planning a TV documentary called Who Killed Jimi Hendrix? because he believes his brother's death was suspicious. He explains how Jimmy's management deal was set to end and the two brothers had plans to go to New York and start a new company. However, fate stepped in and suddenly Jimmy was dead. For Janie, many fans are confused about her relationship with big brother Jimi Hendrix and if she's actually even related to him at all. According to Leon and various newspaper reports, his father married Janie's mother and adopted her. Over the years, she only met her big brother a few times and was only nine years old when Jimmy passed away, which makes Leon's claim all the more heartbreaking for him and his brother's legacy. The impact of Jimi Hendrix's mysterious death over the years has given credence to the deadly curse of the 27 Club. A sensitive soul, the lonely guitarist had a mystical quality about him, and he would often tell others he was just a visitor from another planet. On the evening of August 26, 1970, he would celebrate the official opening party of Electric Lady Studios, his own state-of-the-art recording facility where he personally supervised many of its psychedelic details, including the mural of an elven woman at the console of a spaceship. But according to Rolling Stone magazine, Hendrix didn't enjoy himself that evening. Publicist Jane Friedman, whose company represented the guitarist in America, found him at one point sitting alone on the staircase. I thought, is he exhausted? She says. I walked up to him and said, what's the matter? He admitted he wasn't very happy. Hendrix was upset over a volatile relationship with one of his girlfriends, Devon Wilson. The inspiration for the bloodthirsty vamp in the galloping rocker, Dolly Dagger. The last straw was a food fight started by some guests in his pristine new studio. He split in disgust, and sadly it would be the last time he would be at his beloved studio. A couple of weeks later, Hendrix would tell a Danish journalist that he didn't believe he would live past 28 years old. This same journalist cites Hendrix as telling her that he'd been dead for a long time and had resurrected into a new musical body. On the evening before his death, Hendrix would write a poignant poem called The Story of Life with these final haunting words. I wish not to be alone, so I must respect my other heart. Oh, the story of Jesus is the story of you and me. No use in feeling lonely. I am sending you to be free. The story of life is quicker than the wink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye until we meet again. Jimi Hendrix, a guitar magi and poet warrior. His soul lives on in his words and music. Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, JC Nova. 
Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Death by Misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. <laughs>